the preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? So Ian, what is your, what's your reframed question? Okay, well, so listening to uh, you talk at the very end there, I came up with, here, here are two options. Okay. One would be a quick conversation on the development of the Jewish canon, um, how, how we get from, uh, you know, these ancient scrolls of texts to uh, how, do, how does the Septuagint play into all of that, how, like, all of that. Um, so there's there's one conversation to have. The other conversation that I was thinking about at the end is um, the your work with interfaith dialogue and um, how, uh, in my experience, uh, coming at it, or observing as a Christian, when Christians get involved in interfaith dialogue, it often can devolve into lowest common denominator all religions are basically the same, which translates really to all religions are basically Christianity, right? <laughs> and so what would be a better way to to have that kind of dialogue or conversation? So which, you know, which, think, which one would you like to do? You know, I think they're related, honestly. I think that, um, you know, I think that an understanding of the, of how the Hebrew Bible came to be how the Old Testament came to be differently, the differences within um, and the recognition of um, how we see things through a different lens, even if it's similar texts or the same texts, can then devolve into the misunderstanding and misconception that we all read the Old Testament. We don't. We all worship the same God. We don't. Um, we all worship the same way. We don't. Um, so um, all of that's related. And um, while I don't, I think the points can be made without the full history lesson of how, um, you know, certain aspects of the Torah and the Tanakh were canonized up to the first century CE. I think the main place to start would be um, how and why the Septuagint differs from the Masoretic text, and then building off of what has occurred since then because of that, from a textual point of view and from a perspective point of view um, of what could be a little bit of Christian supremacy um, or supersessionism, or simply accidental landmines that Christians fall into um, because they just don't know the differences and they're important. They're big differences. So I, I think there's there's plenty there that we could go from a textual historical point of view to real life practice. And that's what I really like. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I think that's that's an awesome question um, slash multiple questions. I think that's um, very fruitful. Yeah. Let's start off then with the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to play this episode for my dad because he's asked a very similar question and, uh, I would love to have a rabbi explain it to him. So, yeah. <laughs> sure. 
And and as you're doing it, like uh, de- define those terms as well. Yeah. 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 Sure. Um, so here's what we'll let's start with the fact that um, which a lot of people don't know is that um, there there were and are multiple manuscripts of the Torah and parts of the Tanakh. Um, I think it's important that we stick to the Torah aspect because that's really, that's sort of the bulk of it, but, but others as well. Um, certainly things like Isaiah and, and all those other, you know, prophetic stuff, which play a huge part. But the main point here is that um, we can, by looking at the Hebrew, by looking at the Greek, by looking at, um, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we can look at the other manuscripts, we can now surmise with some strong confidence that whatever manuscript was used to translate into the Septuagint was and is different than that which comes to the Masoretic text, which Jews use. Mm -hmm. So big deal in the fact that, yes, multiple manuscripts flew around for a while. The lost manuscript that was translated into Greek, now we have the Greek, which we can understand through looking at where they translated from a different manuscript, which is different from a Masoretic text. Um, We call it the Masoretic text because in the 7th century CE, the Masoretes, this group of Jews, took these multiple manuscripts and put them together and said, we've just, there's one, like, we're just going to use one. Now, modern biblical scholars say, no, we want all of them. Like, let's, if you read the Biblia Stugardensia, you can see the multiple manuscripts indexes on the side. Yay. Right. Um, and say, well, this one says this, and this one says this, and the Dead Sea Scrolls says this, and this, you know, and that's awesome, right? Um, super observant Jews, they don't want that. They want one text, and, you know, I get it. So if we start with that, right, then we know that, um, and again, I'm sorry that I keep using this Jenga metaphor, but it's my favorite metaphor, is if you build a religious understanding based on a translation of a different manuscript, um, well, one, you're going to get different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are there are things that you can really point out and be like, that is not what our text says. And there is no way that that's a mistranslation. You guys were doing well and you translated it and oh, that is different. Um, and then secondly, the problem of translation, right? Hebrew is an extremely ambiguous, living, flowing, crazy, vague language. And the translator had to choose what that word's going to mean. You know, if you've ever, and I write about this in my book, if you've ever talked to someone who speaks multiple languages and they say, you know, here's this word, and they're like, there isn't really an English equivalent. It, it means this, but it also means this. You don't really have a word for it. Well, that happens between Greek and Hebrew, mm-hmm. right? Um, there isn't quite a word. We're going to try our best, but it doesn't really encapsulate it. But once it's there, it's there, and it's Greek. And that Greek then gets used, um, and it changes. It, it takes a certain point 
whether it's theological or historical or whatever, and runs with it, um, which is then translated into English, which is all the other problems. So now what we have is we have the Hebrew Bible, which is uh, the Masoretic text, which has been, you know, um, decided and changed on, and then you translate from Hebrew to English. But if you ever open up a JPS Tanakh, you'll see multiple um, notes at the bottom that say he meaning of Hebrew uncertain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All the time, because it is uncertain. That was one of my favorite things when I was learning biblical Hebrew was like, yeah, yeah. I have no idea what this what this word means. We, we don't know. Like, we honest to God do not know. Or there are sentences where I could translate all the words of it, but putting it together, there's no way to make it make sense, right? Because there's scribal error, or we don't understand the idiomatic expression, or that word is off, or whatever it is. Of course, you don't see that if you're reading it in English, right? Mm -hmm. It looks perfect in English, right? So you've got that's on the Jewish side, okay? On the Christian side, who have used the Septuagint, which admittedly was not Christian when it was made, it was simply a Greek translation, but but um, the Christians decided, you know, the church decided to use that. Um, that was then translated into the Vulgate, into Latin, where God knows what happened, and then translated into English, which God knows what happened, right? Um, and so the accuracy of playing telephone um, with translations is, is extremely problematic. All the more so is that... Um, I don't remember, maybe you can help me, which denomination um, only stopped using the Septuagint alone as the translation like 50 years ago. They, in other words, for 2,000 years, they relied only on the Septuagint Greek translation to build all of it, right? Missing everything from the Hebrew, right? Now, that is not true of other Christian denominations. Christian, other Christian denominations dived into the Hebrew and worked with it or whatever it is. But, um, you know, Catholics are pretty big out there. And so I have to, you know, acknowledge that. Um, and so that in itself is extremely problematic in terms of what constitutes a Catholic Old Testament versus a Jewish Hebrew Bible. Um and I think that also extends to Protestant and other and other Old Testaments. So that there's that. Then there's the um, the asp. So so the words aren't the same, right? Um, the translation is not the same. The interpretation is not the same. Theology is not the same. Then you've got the order of the books, right? In the Hebrew Bible and the Masoretic text, you go Torah, Prophets, Writings, right? Mm -hmm. Because the, the the Tanakh does not lead to anything. The Tanakh is in itself a library, starts and ends. Now there's apocrypha and pseudepigrapha, whatever, but it starts and ends. That's it, right? The Christian Bible has the prophets last. Why? Because they lead to what would be the New Testament, right? It's the, it's a natural progression from the prophets to Jesus, right? So that in itself changing around how you view the Tanakh versus the Old Testament. The Old Testament mm -hmm. leads to something. The Old Testament builds to the New Testament. The Hebrew Bible does not do that. Um, and so that's that's really hard to explain to certain Christians when people are like um, about the order. I'm like, we're, we're not, 
you know, the texts in the Tanakh are simply the texts. They don't point to anything, right? They don't they don't prophesize for anything. Um, very different from the theology that's embedded in the Old Testament. Um, that these texts reflect something that will come later. You just have to see in that typology and everything. Um, so, with all of that in mind, and more, obviously, when we, on a practical point of view, come and talk in interreligious dialogue and interfaith dialogue, um, and when someone says, you know, if someone says Old Testament, well, you're talking, it's not exclusive in the way that you're excluding Jews. You're literally talking about a different document. Right. So, um, right. and I think that's the, I mean, like inherently a different document. And so when you say, well, let's talk about the Old Testament, like, that's fine. But can we talk about the Hebrew Bible too? Because that's a different mm. book, you know. Um, that's an important thing that, again, that's an accidental landmine that Christians walk into, right? And then when you say, let's talk Old Testament, like, I know the Old Testament because I'm, I'm a rabbi and I've studied Christian scripture, but that's not my book, right? My book is, is the Tanakh. Hmm. Um, and so that's one of those, Ian, as you were saying, common denominators that it sort of floats down to and be like, well, we're all, we're, we're all reading the Old Testament. I don't read the Old Testament. <laughs> You read the Old Testament. Sure. And you read the Old Testament for a reason, to get to the New Testament. I don't have a New Testament. So, um, and my my Hebrew Bible isn't, I mean, it's old, but it's not that old, um, you know, because uh, there's nothing new. So that that's one of those practical examples, right? The other examples would be when we talk texts, right? Um, when we talk about... Um, and, and listen, I, I love talking typology and I love talking about the um, interpretations of predictions and, and um, you know, things that, that point to Jesus through a Christian lens because they're so foreign and so different um, from a Jewish point of view. Um, from a typology and scholarly point of view, I love talking about it. When someone says to me that, I, that the suffering servant is Jesus... Um, you know, I, I, I have to say, well, uh, let's talk about that for a second. Um, and, and the thing that I always tell people right away when we start to hear that interreligious dialogue is I say, I want you to, um, just close your eyes for a second and imagine that, um, you're standing in a barn and you shoot an arrow into the wall. Great, you shoot an arrow into the wall. Later, someone comes in and draws circles around it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then 500 years later, you stumble on it and you say, wow, what a good shot this guy was. He hit a bullseye, right? <laughs> um, that's typology, okay? Um, yes, of course, the suffering servant reflects Jesus because the gospel writers writing about Jesus read the suffering servant. They drew right? the bullseye, yeah. They drew the bullseye around the arrow. And if you come across it later, you say, of course, how could you miss this? How could you possibly not see this as a bullseye? Well, who shot first, right? The arrow was shot first. That's the, that's the uh, 
point where we can start talking about typology, um, those big examples. Um, and that's the part where we have to break up those calcified ideas of um, this is what it is and this is what predicts this or whatever. To me, the suffering servant is Israel or, or um, Isaiah himself. Um, you know, we have, you know, tens of commentaries and different ideas of who that represents. Um, and it's also okay for us to Jews to say we have no idea what Isaiah is talking about. He's rambling. Isaiah, you know, which Isaiah and why? Good Lord, the guy was crazy. Who knows what the <laughs> suffering servant is? But it's not a prediction of anything, right, mm -hmm. um, from a Jewish point of view. And, of course, we do this respectfully because we understand that that is a huge part of theology of Christianity. And I don't want to, um, you know, crap all over it. But from a Jewish point of view, it, it's, um, it's so foreign, right? So when, we, when you start to slide down that pole of common denominator, um, we, we accidentally disregard that. Right. That not everybody believes that, you know, and um, I love going to those websites and seeing like, you know, 20 predictions of Jesus in the Old Testament, you know, and I read these and I'm like, what? I'm like, oh, you just pulled that out like a fortune cookie, man. Like, I mean, the context, the context is so clear. Right. I mean, I was talking to someone about. um they, you know, they were talking about the snake and the relationship with Eve, right? And the and the line in Genesis says, um, you know, you'll she'll strike at his head, and the snake will strike at her heel. And to me, I'm like, okay, that's about snakes biting people and people being scared of snakes and killing people. Mm -hmm. A certain and like, it seems pretty clear. Right. From from that. Other people will tell me that there's this huge aspect about Jesus and Satan and um, and hell and, you know, and original sin and all that. like. And I'm like, it's a snake and a woman. It's a it's you know, it's it's a it's woman. You ever seen a snake? You try to hit it and it tries to bite you. That's it's clear. But um, so what is clear to me is not clear to you and what is clear to you is not clear to me. Um, and so those, um, those interactions, right. I mean, even if it's the Augustine stuff, which messed up everybody, right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, messed up everything, right. It's, you know, and show you see me, show me one more picture of them with an apple. I'm going to freaking have my head explode. It's not an apple, you know? Um, right. so, um, that sort of stuff we have to fight against in our in our interfaith dialogues is we have to fight against what has been put there um, for you to pare it back. And it happens in Judaism too, right? The Talmud and the Midrash says, this is what it is. Well, not necessarily. That's just this, what this one dude said. You mm -hmm. know, um, let's let's take off our blinders. Let's take off our, our colored glasses that we've been taught through religious school and through reading interpretation and whatever it is. And let's look at the texts. What do you see? Here's what I see. What do you see? Um, that's how we get past the historical changes of Old Testament 
and Hebrew Bible is we say, one, here's what the Hebrew says, um, and it's unclear, um, and we can tell it's Old Hebrew or Persian-style Hebrew or, you know, medieval Hebrew, you know, or, or, you know, not medieval Hebrew, but you can test, like, here's Old Hebrew, here's New Hebrew, and here's how we know we can date it. Um, what does the Greek say? Greek says this, you know, if, we, if Hebrew says Alma and Greek says Parthenos, well, I got three texts that say Alma is not a virgin. Right. Right. What do you do with that? Parthenos says means virgin. I get it. I understand that. The person who translated it thought it was virgin. Great. Wonderful. Except I can, I can argue that it's not. Right. Um, that's, that's a conversation that we can have and say, well, what does that mean? If I can tell you in Proverbs that Alma is having sex, um, you know, what does that do for Parthenos? Um, and then what does that do in terms of shaking your tower of this means Jesus, this points to Jesus. And I can say, well, it's not a virgin. What does that mean now? And, um, you know, and they said, what about Emmanuel? I was like, Emmanuel's a wonderful name. That's not Jesus's name. Right. You know, and they're like, no, but I mean, I'm like, not his name. Like Emmanuel, it's its own name. Not Jesus. Yeah. Not Yeshua. Not Yeshua. Not any of that. Emmanuel. Very different. Please don't tell me that Emmanuel equals Jesus. Totally different names. But to someone who has been taught throughout years that Emmanuel represents Jesus, it makes perfect sense. So those, you know, it's all intertwined, right? Interpretation with translation, with um, differing manuscripts, all of it's intertwined and we get a mess. And that's our job as interfaith um, people connecting is to unravel that mess and, and you know, say, well, wait a second, you mentioned that, we need to fix that. Now let's keep talking. Now while we mentioned that, we got to fix that. Now let's keep talking. And that's why it takes so long. That's why it's so hard. And we have to keep our emotions out of it, right? Um, we have to we have to remove the fact that um, it's hard for us to hear what I've been brought up to know may not be so. And I do this to Jews too, you know, with those big aha moments where the tower comes tumbling down. But it's necessary and it's productive. Um, and that's what real interfaith dialogue is. Um, so, yeah. How's that for a uh, diatribe? Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's pretty great. The Alma Parthenos Virgin thing, um, and how that then trickles down to like when you look at fundamentalist Christians, five point fundamentalists. One of the five points is that uh, Jesus was born of a virgin, and like you have to then go back to that uh, passage in Isaiah and. Um, when I was, uh, just a few weeks ago teaching my class about, um, I, we were looking at Mary's Magnificat and, um, I asked my class, so what do you, what do you know about Mary? Like, tell me what you know about Mary. The first thing everyone said was, well, virgin, she's a virgin, she has to be a virgin. Right. <laughs> I'm like, maybe, maybe. Right. Um, let's unpack that. And yeah. I'll mention that like this whole like there's now this whole thing about deconstruction, right? Mm -hmm. Huge fan of deconstruction. Deconstruct Judaism. Let's deconstruct the crap out of it. 
Um, but there are others who, you know, that's very scary, right, um, to deconstruct what has been. And what you do, Ian, saying like, well, maybe, is like a minimized form of, de well, let's deconstruct what you have been taught with a maybe, you know, that's that can be very scary to certain, like you said, fundamentalists or whatever. And, and while certainly we should have some empathy for it, we also should tell them to get over it. And um, mm -hmm. let's have real conversations, you know, right. about it. Yeah, yeah. If I was, the course I was teaching was not a New Testament course. And if I were teaching a New Testament course, I would have uh, gone more in depth into that. And, and that just would have been like the topic of a lecture uh, for, for a day is like, right, all of that, as opposed to right. here's, here's this text on the Magnificat, we're looking at it as, as a devotional for the start of class. And then we're going right. to everything else. Right. And there are uses, we don't always have to pick apart verses. Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're just beautiful uses to center us or whatever it is. Right. There's there's a difference between um, using our texts to worship and using our texts to, you know, study and deconstruct and things like that. And I think people yeah. get scared, you know, when I would when I would finish with um, an adult education where I would rip apart some sort of historical whatever it is. And they say, well, how am I supposed to go to worship and um, and sing this liturgy about it? I'm like, this has nothing to do with that. You know, um, don't let that, you know, just because, you know, the Song of the Sea is an inset poem from older, you know, Hebrew doesn't mean you can't go to worship and sing, can't sing Micha Mocha anymore. Like there's, there's, there's beauty to it. Go, go worship. But then we'll worry about the historical accuracy later. I mean, but I think people get muddled with that. They get confused with that and they're not sure how to, uh, how to make peace with those two aspects of what is progressive religion is traditional liter tradition within liturgy and beauty within verses. And then going to a class and saying, well, maybe, you know, easier yeah. for some. It, and it's definitely a, um, a practice of holding things a lot more loosely. This is a term that Ian uses all the time when he's describing his faith. Um, is that like, it, it's, uh, it's being able to look at the big picture, see the beauty, and also know that like things can be tweaked, right? Our, our Jenga tech tower could actually be built to be much more flexible. It doesn't have to be pull one block and you're done. Um, right. Do you have any thoughts on how, um, like we're not going to go into like kindergarten, Sunday school or Hebrew school and say, well, you know, the Septuagint is this, but the Midrashic text is this. <laughs> how do we, how do we raise kids who aren't going to need to deconstruct? Like, how do we, how do we introduce the idea of this complexity so that when they grow up, they aren't floored by it? Um, you know, it's a hard question, and thank God I'm not in that business anymore. <laughs> um, but here's what I will say, is that there is a time for puppies and rainbows, right? Ooh, yeah. There's, there's a time to tell people that, yes, Noah got all the mosquitoes and whatever it is and boarded that ark, and it's a, got the rainbow, and it's a beautiful story. There's a time for that, right? That's a kid's story. Um. 
it is our responsibility as spiritual leaders, as rabbis and pastors, and that when they get older, right, um, you start to learn a little bit more, little by little, you you bring into that questioning aspect. Um, and then as you get into high school, you start to really, high school kids are smart. Mm-hmm. And they love to just rip stuff apart. And they're just like, holy moly, awesome, you know. And then finally, what I'll say about that is that this is why adult education should be number one. Mm. Like, I love religious school. Great. Adults need to be in education every week learning about this stuff. Because it's not the kids who are who are going out and murdering people or mm-hmm. discriminating against people, right? Um, it's the adults who have not graduated from that religious school, right? Um, they have not grown up to see the book, um, to see the library, to see the testaments as something different than the puppies and the rainbows that they grew up with, which is safe and warm and wonderful and clear. Um, but, you know, and I, I use this a lot, that if you keep getting born again, you never grow up. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to, at a certain point, be an adult looking at these texts as an adult. Um, and I think you can sprinkle stuff throughout the way, right? When I, when I taught fourth grade um, in Sunday school, I let them read the real text. Um, next to the lesson text, right? The little workbook. And I said, what's the thing that you notice about the fruit? And they were like, this one says it's not an apple. And I'm like, ta-da, you know, <laughs> now what? Um, and they're like, whoa, awesome, you know? And then they take that with like, you know, there's little things that you can plug in without, as you said, um, to be able to say like, well, this is the Septuagint and multiple manuscripts and typology and super set. Like, give me a break. That's not going to work. But being able to say, well, what do you think now? Mm. You know, um, this is what this says, but not everybody thinks that um, builds a different student, right? I mean, I, I, I wish that um, that the Bible was taught uh, the same way Shakespeare is taught, right? And saying, look, um, what you what you see in this old English isn't particularly relevant right now. You need a guide and a teacher to help interpret it, to help translate it. And now that that's what that's supposed to mean at that particular time, now you can write a paper on it. Right. right now, you can formulate what Shakespeare was trying to say. Right, if you hear all the world's a stage and you think that Earth is on a stage, you've right. missed the idiom. You've missed the point. Right, you need a teacher to be able to say, "Well, here's what Shakespeare is trying to say." Right, if you read "To Be or Not to Be," you don't know it's about suicide unless someone tells you that's what it's about. Right. And when you're in high school, if you're reading certain aspects of the Torah or the Tanakh or the Old Testament or the New Testament, you know, um, 
no one in a no one in an English class would say, "Well, what do you think Shakespeare means?" Hmm. We know what Shakespeare meant. <laughs> like, um, who cares what you think, right? In in the Tanakh, right? Um, what I tell my high schoolers is, you know, I think that's beautiful that you think that. Except you're not the audience, right? You weren't the audience for that text. And here's what the author was trying to say to that audience. Now, what do you think? Right? Um, and that prevents um, wild, baseless interpretations that are usually sometimes harmful from um, expanding and becoming canon or becoming, you know, dogma or, you know, or whatever it is. Because you understand the idea of historical distance and audience, just like you would with any other work of literature, um, whether it's holy or not, right? Um, you know, whether you believe it to be divine or not, it is still a piece of literature, um, which has genre, which has tropes, which has motif adaption, you know, which has idiomatic expressions and thing. you know, and I tell kids that <clears throat> in a thousand years, if someone um, reads something and it says, cat got your tongue. Someone's going to say, well, we were, they were living, 21st century people were living in a place where cats were given to rip out people's tongues, and it meant this, right? They've missed the idiom completely. Um, you need to know what was, what the cultural repertoire was at the time. So that, to me, is sprinkling at, you know, give them the puppies and rainbows. At around fourth grade, fifth grade, start to sprinkle in a little bit of doubt. And then by high school, challenge them and say, what if I told you this? Then what? High school kids, in my experience, heads explode. And then in a, in a good way, they say, well, what else? Tell me more like whatever. And that builds intellectual, compassionate Bible readers instead of fundamentalists. And then when they, become, they go to adult ed, they crave it. They mm -hmm. say, I, I, give me more on that. Give me something else to wrestle with, not simply something to accept. Um, you know, the Bible isn't mathematical equations, right? Um, a plus B doesn't always equal C. Um, it is more like an English class or an existentialism class um, where we have to talk about themes and genre, Um and complicated characters. Right. And what, you know, you can't teach, you know, Nietzsche um, without knowing who Nietzsche was. Or um, you can't read The Stranger without, you know, figuring, you know, what was this, what was going on? Or you can't read Gatsby without, right. you know, without help, you know. Um, just like you can't read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 together without someone there helping you say, okay, well, here's what we think, here's this, here's the problems with it, what do you think that, you know, that's what's necessary in, in, in my point of view. Whether it's realistic, I don't know, but yeah. that's my that's my world that I like to live in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good world. And I, and I think also, like, there is real value in um, letting kids be kids and for for that period of time to let them know that, like, 
safety is a thing. You can create safe spaces. Yeah. You can create that that good and joyful feeling. And then so that so that they're not completely thrown off, right? And then you introduce slowly this idea that like let's challenge it. So it's an adventure rather than um, this kind of constant state of questioning that's in an unsafe way. Because I think there's a way to just doubt everything and and feel off balance. Oh, I agree. And and I'll I will encounter adults who are completely knocked off balance because there was nothing in between mm-hmm. the puppies and rainbows and my class. And when you go to my class, I'm going to knock your head off if you haven't had some sort of in between. And it's it's scary, right? Um, but you know, the as there is a safe space, a safe religious school where no one's talking about fear and hell and punishment and hate. They're talking about God made a rainbow, and they're talking about you know Moses came down and his there was light and there was you know and here's the Ten Commandments and let's talk about why you shouldn't murder people. Like that's that's for the kiddos, right? In between. There needs to be something strong. There needs to be something that gets it so that when they become adults, they don't say, I was lied to. You weren't lied to. You were a kid, right? Um, As your teachers, we did the best we could to teach you what you needed to know at the time. Now you need to know something different, and that's okay. You know, um, the same thing with, you know, you don't teach you know, kindergartners that Columbus was a genocidal maniac, right? He sailed the ocean blue in 1492, and that's it for now. Later, you'll learn about Columbus, you know, um, and that's okay. You know, we take what, what what is necessary for us without ruining our innocence drastically. Yeah. Or we could just not teach Columbus. <laughs> or we could just not teach Columbus. I mean, that even better. Yeah. But um, even better. I'm fully for that, right? Um, you know, teach about Native American or whatever. But, you know, that's a larger issue. But the point is, is, yeah, that's the world that I think would create less fundamentalism and less um, what we would call, what I would call sort of like lashing out when the mm-hmm. tower starts to shake. You know, the emotional you know, lash out of like, you know, you're lying and you're, ru- you know, you're li- like, calm down. Like you, you need to, you needed to graduate third grade and then, and then you can, then let's have a conversation. You haven't quite gotten there. Um, and, um, and that's one of the main things that I find as a problem and I hope to solve is that huge gap of knowledge between pastors, rabbis, and lay people. Mm-hmm. Um, enormous gap. Um, you know, we have to go through seminary and learn about multiple manuscripts and documentary yeah. hypothesis and all that, right? These poor people have never come close to anything like that. We need to narrow that gap. And that's what my YouTube channel is, Teach Me Judaism, is all about, is um, it's not scary. We need to narrow this a little bit so that you're on our page so that when I talk about Moses or you talk about Jesus, we're on the same level. Obviously, I'm your teacher and you're my student, but it's not it's not me. You know, it's not a huge, huge gap. 
because um, that's not that's not productive. Um, we're not we're not out to ruin people's innocence and, and ruin their lives, um, but we are there to provide them with critical thinking skills when yeah. it comes to the Bible. So, yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's a good place to wrap up this short conversation. Uh, that was a lot of fun. That was good. Yeah. Um, okay. All right, Ian, uh, will you sign us off? Sure thing. Uh, friends, this has been a mini-sode of What the Hell is a Pastor. We are the Dude John Wesley and the Tower Shaker. And we'll see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Joe Schoenwolf, Ian Oriola, and Paul Oriola, and produced by Paul Oriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptivedisciples, on Twitter at wthisapastor, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash wthiap, where you can get access to pillow talk, signed cards, episode suggestions, and so much more. Thanks for listening and go shake some towers, friends. <laughs> Yay. I feel so powerful. What a title. Right. Wow. I want that on my business card. <laughs> Do it.